Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. The issue of cyberbullying gained national attention with the suicide death of 13-year-old Megan Meyer, who killed herself after being cyberbullied by an adult and two minors on the popular social networking site MySpace. The story about the sequence of events that led to Megan's death were unfamiliar to those of us who are more acquainted with traditional bullying that consists of schoolyard taunts and physical aggression that might be avoided by limiting physical proximity to the bully. But what if that bully were able to reach you whenever he wanted, as often as he wanted, in your usual places of safety, including your home? Youth are at particular risk as they, according to some estimates, spend as many as two to four hours daily online. Today's guest, Dr. Faye Mishna, identifies 24-hour access as one of the characteristics that distinguishes traditional bullying from cyberbullying, thus requiring a different approach by practitioners and policymakers. Dr. Mishna is Dean and Professor at the Factor Inwintash Faculty of Social Work, University of Toronto, where her program of research focuses on traditional bullying cyber abuse and bullying, and cyber counseling, as well as school-based interventions for students with learning disabilities. Today, Dr. Mishna discusses her research on cyberbullying among youth, its prevalence, its effects, and what social workers can do to begin to address this growing problem. Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, interviews Dr. Mishna by telephone. So let's just start from here then. If you could tell me a little bit about cyberbullying, what it is and how much of a problem it is. I think people would agree that it's a problem. What it is is sort of harder to say. There's different definitions of it, but because it's fairly new, I think that researchers would agree that there's not a clear definition. And that links with how much of a problem it is because if you look at the research, there's quite a range in terms of the research that's been done regarding the prevalence of it. Some would say it's 15%, others would, my research, for example, found 50%, as did others. So some of it depends on how you define it and how you ask it. But regardless of that, people would agree that it's a problem. What it is, it's really aggression, it's intent to hurt somebody using electronic forms of communication technology. Most bullying, traditional bullying definitions include repetition. 
When you talk about repetition for cyberbullying, it's a bit more complicated because there might not be the same kind of repetition, and yet if, let's say, I sent an email about you because so many people can see it, somebody else might send it, many other people might send it. So there's a whole issue about repetition and what that looks like. There's also an issue about power imbalance. When people talk about the power imbalance in traditional bullying. They talk about somebody who's older, bigger, smarter, more people, um, higher social status. In cyberbullying, uh, the power imbalance is harder to tell. One might be that you're more proficient in the technology. The other is just the power of having this potentially large audience. So some of the pieces of the definition really have to be sorted out, and I think that's recognized, but generally it's the intent to cause harm. How in particular do you see this as being similar to traditional bullying and different? I mean, you've talked a little bit about that in terms of this way of thinking about it, but my guess is the similarities and differences are broader than that. Well, in terms of the similarities, the big similarity, of course, is that there's an intent to hurt. Now, there's an intent to hurt, and there's some kind of power imbalance, although even with traditional bullying, there's more questioning about that. But there's an intent to hurt. Another thing that is similar is that even though originally there was this thought that it was anonymous, the research that we have done, but research that others have done too, shows that it often is not anonymous and that it's actually happening within the social group. So it's often by and with either friends or kids they know from school or their peers that they know. That's also similar to traditional bullying. One of the real hallmarks of traditional bullying that research has found is that it often happens in front of witnesses. But we're finding that cyberbullying also does. The other similarity is it has an effect. Even though in both of them, behaviors, aggressive behaviors that are considered bullying that might look minor, quote minor, like calling somebody names, things like that, actually over time can really have quite an impact on kids. It can really affect their social, emotional, academic functioning. In terms of differences, one big difference, of course, is that traditional bullying can be direct or indirect. So the direct would be physically hurting somebody. In cyberbullying, the actual cyberbullying cannot be direct. It can only be indirect. It can be direct in terms of names and threats, but it can't be physical. But the other thing that research is showing, and again, depending on who's done the research, there's quite a variation. Some research has said there's a high overlap between kids who are involved in cyberbullying and kids who are involved in traditional bullying. Other research finds there's some overlap, but not as high. So in that sense, it can go back and forth. Bullying, it might not be just unique to cyberbullying. So somebody who's involved in cyberbullying as a victim or as an aggressor might also be involved in traditional bullying. That's another factor in that, how they're similar. So I think those are the main ways. And that there may be a power imbalance. And in both, what's similar is there's an intent to hurt, definitely an intent to hurt. Well, one of the things that I found interesting as I was looking through some of the work that you've published is um, some of the qualitative studies that you've done, where you really captured, I think, more of the understanding and meaning about what might be going on here. This idea of anonymity, I thought, was fascinating because, as you mentioned, the research talks about cyberbullying as being anonymous, and yet that's really not what your research and others are uncovering now. It's often happening in the context of social 
networks of friends. And I was just curious about, you had a wonderful quote that if you don't mind, I'd like to read that I thought sort of raised some of the issues here about this issue of anonymity. It was reading, uh, the following statement by a 12-year-old girl captures the confusion about whether the identity of the cyber aggressor is known to the victimized child. And in quotes, I think cyberbullying is so horrible because nobody really knows. Like if you're being bullied, nobody knows. You don't know who's doing it and it's just so silent. And even if you do know who's doing it, you feel really bad. You can't see her. You can't really tell her to her face how you feel. I thought that was a wonderful quote because it really captured some of the, obviously the pain for this, but also this idea of anonymity. What do you make of these mixed findings on anonymity? I found it very fascinating because the kids on the one hand told us, in quotes like that, that they thought it was anonymous but as they spoke. And even in her own that statement, she said, but even if you do know, there's nothing you can do about it. So it makes me wonder if part of it, that part of what they're talking about isn't even anonymity, but it's that lack of visual cueing. Do you feel anonymous? Because other kids who were aggressors said something very similar from the other side. They said, well, you know, when you're writing it or texting it and you just have to press that button, you don't see what you're doing to the other person. It's like not as real. It's virtual. So it makes me think about whether there's something about what happens in the relationship and what how the the actual technology mediates that. And I think that's one of the reasons we really have to find out what are the motivating factors that contribute to it. You know, we know some of the things that contribute to bullying, any kind of bullying, is anybody who's different in some way, marginalized groups. But the other question is, is there anything that happens because of the fact of the Internet or cell phone or webcam that there's this disconnect? And even on the one hand, it's very real, because I don't mean to say it's not real. And I think for kids, it's incredibly real. But they're not seeing the impact of what they're doing. Whereas in a recess in the schoolyard, if they're taunting a kid, they see the effect right there. It doesn't stop them from doing it, but they see it. So from the perpetrator's point of view, it's sort of consequence-free. I don't get any of the immediate cues that show me the impact. Exactly. And from the victim's point of view... It's the reverse. I don't get to show them what I feel. So there's this real silence and lack of a voice yeah. and almost uh, being depersonalized. Exactly. I think that's the word, the depersonalized. And I think we really need more research on that to see how that impacts it. Well, yeah, because it does give this sense of anonymity and the sense of it's anonymity and, and I know who it is, but it's out of the context of a personal connection at that point. Exactly. And that's why we call it perceived anonymity. But it's interesting because, as you said, it's out of the context of a personal connection on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, they are so connected. And one of our findings, and I've seen that in others too, is that because these kids are in the digital native, as opposed to us adults, so many adults still say, I still hear adults saying, it's not real. It's not as real as talking on the phone or seeing people in person. You say that to a kid, they, they just feel like adults don't understand. So it's a very interesting kind of contradiction because on the one hand, it's very real. On the other hand, there's a depersonalization in the contact. And yet on the other hand, it's a very real contact. We don't really know the effects of that. Well, and part of it is that is if you're the person having the interaction, well, you might not see the consequences of what you're doing. You do feel something about that connection. In other words, uh, a, a 
connection is very much a felt connection between the people involved. And I would say, based on what little I know about some brain research that's happening, that the brain would not be distinguishing between my emotional reactions in the sort of cyber situation versus a, quotes, real-life situation. You know, I think that's a really good point because it probably wouldn't be, right? The same, same things would be firing. It's all about perception. It's all about how I'm perceiving and thinking and the meanings of it. Yes, yeah. So I suspect that that's really what, what kids are saying when they say this is a real relationship. This is a real connection. I have a real affective charge with this person. And, and of course, in many cases, they do actually know the person in, in um, their physical life as well. But I do think, you know, you sort of hit on something. I, I think there's a, there's a generation gap here, but I would say it's more in some contexts than others. I mean, one of my concerns as a social worker has been the lack of knowledge and understanding of technology that social workers have. And a lot of my colleagues immediately sort of dismiss these connections that are made through technology as unreal, not legitimate, and just not relevant to human connection. And that if you start at that place, you're going to be in a very difficult place to try to help a teenager sort any of this stuff out. I agree completely. That's one of our major findings in most of our, our articles. That, that's always a, a conclusion. That adults need to understand that it's real. And if they don't, teenagers discount them because they say they don't get it. They don't understand. And by definition, that's true. So even, for example, one of the things that, you know, an adult say if somebody's being bullied, turn it off, they're not understanding. It's not the computer. You can turn off the computer, but this is an interaction. Turning off the computer does not turn off that interaction. It does cut you off from your social life. But I agree with you about social workers. And it's interesting because, I mean, I know this is not what we're talking about, but another professor here, we are looking at how we're calling it the creep, but we're looking at how technology even creeps into counseling interactions with social workers and clients because often it kind of just creeps in. And social workers, you know, are not prepared for it. But I do agree that one of the big issues that adults and social workers and educators don't recognize enough that this is real, that it is a real, it's really a generation gap, and they need, we need to understand that. The other reason we need to understand it is because we need to learn that world. By not learning the world, because then we have a paradox where we're saying, the adults supposed to help protect the kids, but how can they help protect kids in this world that they don't know anything about? So they really need to take it seriously. And the other thing that's very important, too, that I think that happens with cyberbullying, when we do hear about it, it's often when something dramatic happens, like that boy at Rutgers. We often hear the extreme and the negative. And what gets missed is that there's a tremendous amount of research that really talks about the great benefits of the Internet and communication technology for kids, both academic information, but also for their social relationships, that there are many benefits and we can't just ignore that. I think that that's really critical and, and what that's what happens when we just discount that and just talk about the negatives. I've thought a little bit about this. It seems like every new technology gets demonized to be you know, have only negative impacts. And uh, we don't, of course, challenge the telephone anymore because that's very accepted in our culture. But there was a time when the telephone was, was challenged about bringing about negative things. Now we certainly can see that there are positive benefits to that. And you don't hear enough about the positive parts of the way technology can help these kids connect and, and other people. 
Um, and that, of course, I think that really interferes with our ability to understand this. I mean, I was struck as um, I read through one of your articles that, that reviewed the interventions for either prevention or intervention with cyberbullying. I was struck by how narrow some of the interventions are in terms of the behaviors that they're addressing. And as I was thinking about this from a, a young person's perspective, they see so many benefits and they're getting so many benefits from the technologies. And of course, they we, we'd like them not to be victims of bullying or perpetrators of bullying. I think some of the issue for them is sorting out when the technologies are helpful to their relationships and when they're not, and what's appropriate for what sorts of settings and what behaviors are not appropriate in any any type of setting. I, I wondered if anybody's even doing, trying to develop interventions that are a little broader than that, that really start to sort out some of those issues that I think kids are probably trying to sort out in their lives. Well, I think the researchers involved in this are, are recognizing that this needs to be done because I think researchers do realize that there are many positive benefits. For example, David Finkelhorn, his group has been doing research on not just on cyberbullying, but just the effects of the internet on frequent users, and they've done, I think, two waves of it. But they really stress that there are many positive benefits, and then we need to kind of really look at that. The other point that goes along with that, too, is when we talk about some of the negative effects, whether it's bullying or abuse that happens, we often talk about it as though it only happens online. And forgetting that, as I said before, there's often a connection. So somebody who is vulnerable to being bullied or bullying online might also be vulnerable offline. Same as abuse that happens. Often it's not just happening online. It might be relationships that are occurring offline that are taking advantage of the online to conduct you something that's uh, abusive towards children. But we tend to just focus on it as though it's separate and disconnected from their life, and it's really not. The other thing is you know, when there's a real concern about strangers, and I think at first there was a sense it was all strangers, and then now research is showing that it's really not. It's, it's people in both adults and kids in their in their worlds that are often the ones to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I, it reminds me of what happened around sexual abuse in this country. There is so much work on stranger danger, and yet what we know from the statistics is that it's most likely going to happen at the hands of somebody that you know. It's exactly the same thing. So when we talk about cyberbullying even, you know, that at first there's a sense that kids are supposed to be safe in their homes, which they are, and that cyberbullying brings danger in, into their homes which it does because, you know, traditional bullying, that's another difference. Traditional bullying tends to happen in set places like school. So when you go home, you know, it's not going to happen as much. Whereas with cyberbullying, one of the kids' research I thought was very poignant said, he called it nonstop bullying because it could start at school, continue on cyber, and go back. But it's important, we have to remember that one of the issues that kids have to deal with that we need to address as a society and as social workers is that many kids are not safe in their homes, not just because of cyberbullying and not just because of technology, but because of just traditional ways of abuse and neglect. So we really need to be aware of that. Yes, and I was thinking that, of course, for a kid who's experiencing cyberbullying and who also isn't safe in their home because of something happening in the family, they're left with no safe place. Exactly. And the other groups, and, and this applies to whether it's traditional bullying or cyberbullying, when we talk about bullying, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's very helpful to talk about bullying because it brings, takes these behaviors and says we need to deal with them, and that even though they might not look major, they actually are and have significant effects. On the other hand, it can kind of, when we talk about bullying in general, cyberbullying in general, we forget about the underlying motivations. 
So, for example, homophobia, racism, sexism, the sexual harassment that happens, the homophobia that happens. So we need to address that because it's not just about kids bullying. It's about kids bullying and being aggressive and hurting each other. But many of these ways that they're doing it really reflect our society, and it needs to get addressed in those larger ways because these kids are not safe. So, for example, whether it's traditional or cyberbullying, if you um, if a child or a teenager uh, is gay or lesbian and they're being bullied for that, even though we always say, oh, go tell an adult, well, they might not be able to go tell their parents or their teachers so easily because they don't know what the response is going to be. So we really can't, often we come up with strategies that are very simplistic and might work for some kids, but there's a lot of kids it's not going to work for. So there's a lot more complexity to the problem than... Yes. Like any social work issue, right? Like any, exactly. Like human life, it's, it's complex. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I think one of the things I was thinking as I was reading about how invasive this type of bullying can be in terms of, you know, I'm on the computer in my room at home and that's where the bullying's happening or with my phone, is that for kids who have trauma exposure in other ways, other types of victimization, this really could exacerbate things to a level that I, I mean, it's one thing if I know I'm going to be bullied when I walk by certain parts of the school, I know, you know, there's a time when I'm going to be anxious, but if, if I'm going to be encountering this in through my entire life, there's reason for the anxiety in every situation. And if I have a prior exposure to, it seems to me that cyberbullying could actually have an impact for, for vulnerable populations that would be more extreme in terms of psychiatric symptoms um, and health symptoms than, um, than traditional bullying might. Is, is there any work that's been done on that? There is a little bit of work that's been done that has shown exactly that, that, that has an effect on depression over and above. Julie Blaze has done some work on that. But yes, and I think for those reasons. The other um, aspect of cyberbullying is that if somebody's bullied in a schoolyard or in a classroom, the episode ends. Then they might relive it, and we know post-trauma, you know, that, that has huge effects. But with cyberbullying of any kind, it's stays on. So it's existing on the internet. So for girls, for example, I mean, that's where you know, in a dramatic example, but it happens fairly often who might end up kind of being coerced or without thinking, they send a, a picture of themselves to a boyfriend and let's say they break up and then he sends it all over. Well, that's on the internet forever. And even if, and Police that I've worked with have said that they've gotten a lot of calls. It's one of the calls they get, you're begging them to be able to take it off, and of course they can't. So the effect of that on them can be that every time they turn on the computer or look at their cell phone, they the fear that it might show up, and they don't know who's seen it, and they don't know who will see it. And when we ask kids whether they're aware of that, of course, before they do it, they don't think about that. Many of them think that you can delete photos or emails. They don't realize it just because it's been deleted off your computer. You can't really delete it off where, you know, cyber, cyberspace. Yeah, so that has a very different impact on someone in a situation like that than yeah. an episode that has a, you know, a beginning and an end. Yeah, I, I you know, I see why there'd be a lot of layers to this. And I guess the other thing I'm sort of struck by is depending on the type of technology involved, this can play out very differently. I mean, text messaging, instant messaging, and then webcams, I mean, obviously, Absolutely. are all very different. Absolutely. And it's actually one of, and the other thing that's one of the challenges about cyberbullying is that 
it's hard when people talk about how to intervene. It's very important to try to find ways to intervene or to come up with recommendations that transcendence of technology because for the longest time, and it still is, often what you read as the major tip is to make sure you keep the Internet in a public space and supervise it. Well, most kids now don't even go onto the Internet, don't use email. It's on their cell phone. There's no way you can monitor that. So it's really important to make sure that it's about communication and interventions that aren't aren't really dependent on that particular technology because by the time people start following the recommendation, it's, it's no longer relevant because that technology is not used. That's a big challenge, and I think it's a hard challenge because as we know with social workers, people often want kind of a quick tip. And with this, there really isn't a quick tip. The main tip is communication. Yes, which sounds simple and we know isn't easy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. From a policy perspective, it seems that people are all over the map about this particular issue in terms of cyberbullying, in terms of whose responsibility it is. Can you say anything about what you know about that? Well, what I know about it is I think schools would recognize it. it's a community problem, that just because it happens outside of the school doesn't mean they're not responsible. And part of that is, I think, the recognition now that even though it's happening outside of school grounds, it's often happening with school peers, and it's related. So again, it's a community problem. And that's one of the issues, because if it happens in somebody's home, it can't just be up to their parents, or the child and the parents, because it's happening, it relates to school, it relates to their peers. So it's a large issue. And I think, I'm not sure exactly how policy is going to deal with it, because the other issue that often comes up is zero tolerance. And as we know, zero tolerance, I mean, research shows this, that does not work. That becomes a knee-jerk reaction when something extreme happens. But I would say most schools make it a priority at this point and would definitely agree that it's part of their problem. But I think it's important. I think also there's more recognition, too, that it can't be just up to the schools because it's a larger community problem. So if you had a community that was that came to you to say, you know, what should we do to really address this problem in our community? Given the research is still new on all this, people still want to take some action. What would your recommendations be? I still think that the idea that often we, we intervene with the problem in terms of the bullying. So I still think the, the recommendation with traditional bullying that talks about how to behave properly, building even, they call it netiquette now, how to behave on the internet and to learn and to have scenarios that help you walk you through so you can feel empathic, so you can see the consequence of your behavior on somebody else, so you can actually be aware of that interaction. I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is the real importance of being dealt with on all levels, like how people deal with each other in the classroom, how the teachers deal with them, and parents' involvement. And I think the hard part is that that is more expensive, it's more complicated. But I think that just dealing with the bullying itself, in a way, is just after the fact. In terms of the bullying behavior, I think it's really important to, just like traditional bullying, to help kids be able to be positive witnesses who can not just be passive, but tell somebody, try to get somebody involved, to do something about it because it often does happen in front of witnesses. But that means parents and teachers need to know how to deal with it so that they will take it seriously without just saying turn off the computer, but that they'll actually address that. So I think it needs to be dealt with in all those kinds of levels.
lots of dimensions to it, but starting with a prevention approach around social skills, but social skills um, as it relates to all of these technology-mediated interactions. And, and followed with problem solving. You know, in a way, groups that I've spoken to, you know, one of the things we often talk about with cyber is there's lots of do's and don'ts of what kids and adults to do, but particularly kids. And I think that's very helpful. But what we, we do know, though, even if you do all those things, you still might run into trouble. You still might get bullied. You still might turn on your computer and find pornography. The other thing we know is that if you give kids or adults, but if you give them tips, they might not follow them all the time. So then they might run into trouble for that. So I hate the term harm reduction because it's that's more to do with an addiction. But a similar approach, when I think about um, drinking and driving, when we were growing up, the message was just, don't drink if you're going to drive, period. Now the message to kids is, don't drink if you can drive, but if or you also don't drink. But if you do drink, phone your parents, and parents go pick them up. Don't get mad at them. Pick them up. We need to add that onto this. So when we give tips, I really do think we need to say, but if you do get into trouble, whether it's just because it happened, even if you were doing everything you're supposed to do, or if you did something you weren't supposed to do, because some of the kids in our research would say that they didn't tell their parents, partly because their parents had done their, quote, homework. They had done what they're supposed to do. They told them about the dangers of the Internet and said, don't do this, don't do that. So the kids would say, I'm not supposed to do this. My parents will be disgusted. They'll be mad at me. So the second message to the kids and the parents has to be, if you do do it, tell your parents. And to the message to the parents, it has to be, you have to help them problem solve. And that means two things. The parents need to both change their mindset to not just say don't do it, but they also need to learn how to deal with it to help them problem solve, the same as educators. And it goes back to communication and problem solving. So I think all of that is all part of it. So both starting from prevention of how to be, but also problem solving to how to deal with things that come up so that they don't just then not say anything and wait till it gets worse. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about stress inoculation training, which really works with people to, okay, so let's assume you're still going to have to confront some stressors. You know, exactly. So what happens when you do? Let's start working on that. And how exactly, are you going to exactly. Yeah. And I think that's very reassuring for people, as you know, because otherwise when they start to feel the stress or the kid runs into trouble or the parent sees their kid runs into trouble, if they haven't been prepared for it, they don't know how to deal with it, number one. And number two, they feel worse about themselves, which doesn't help. So let me ask you a question to sort of shift an angle here for some final thoughts. As, as deans of schools of social work, we're always worried about, you know, educating the next generation of social workers and or working with our faculty to do that. Um, what do you think the implications of what you know about cyberbullying are for what we need to be educating social workers about? Well, one thing I think we need to do, both not just cyberbullying, but all kinds of cyber, when you think about... Uh, when we're educating social work students to go in and work, whether it's in child welfare or hospitals or mental health, they, they learn about assessments to ask about kids and adults, the populations who are at risk. So they try to determine the risk level. And they'll ask, for teenagers, they'll ask about risky behaviors. And my sense is they're still not asking about risky behaviors online. So number one is learning how to ask about it, but the other thing we know from the research is that even if you ask, they often don't tell. So you, we also need to become aware of the kinds of clues and symptoms that indicate 
that they might be. So that has to just enter their kind of mindset of the kinds of risks they're looking at, thinking of, which is very new. So I think that's one thing that they really need to do. And then the other, in terms of the whole cyber world, I think they need to realize that when they're doing, providing services to whether it's kids or adults, that even if they're doing it traditionally, that often a client might just email them and say, oh, by the way, I want to change this appointment. But then they need to be prepared because then that's why we call it kind of the creep because at the end of that, it might be, oh, and by the way, which might be something alarming. So they need to be prepared for it creeping into their traditional work because it changes the boundaries. Before the Internet and before cell phone and all that technology, when you, you know, Monday to Friday, whatever your hours were, you were there. And then, you know, people might have your after hours phone number, but that was up to you. Or they could leave a message or they were told where to go. But now people can contact you by email. And once you've got it, you've got it. And so we need to be prepared for that. So I would say those are two major ways. We're doing focus groups, and some people have said that they work in agencies where the policy is just we don't do it. And then when we say to the practitioners, well, do you follow that? And they say, well, not always, right, because you can't necessarily follow up. So again, making very clear rules that might not be realistic. In this day and age, I don't know how feasible it is to say we just don't do email because that's the way of the world. So instead, people and agencies have to find out what they're going to do with it, how they're going to draw the boundary around it, how are they going to deal with it. It has many implications, and there are not easy questions, but I think we need to grapple with that. And I do also think that social work educators need to start preparing social work practitioners to be aware of the risks, both the benefits and the risks, though, of all the different forms of cyber abuse. Is there anything that we haven't talked about uh, about this topic that you think needs to be said before I let you get back to your busy schedule? The only other thing I would say is that it's really everybody's responsibility to keep kids safe because what we know is if a child going to school or going home and they're afraid of being bullied in any way, that that can affect all aspects of their lives and, and both now and the future. So I just think we really need to, again, recognize that not just for the extreme cases, but that we really have an obligation to, to help these kids feel safe so they can learn. Because we also know that when kids are in danger or frightened or very anxious, they're not able to learn. Well, thank you for your time. This is really, I'm excited about this podcast. Oh, thank you. No, those are great questions. It's a topic that I'm really interested in. And I'm impressed that you've been able to do this work, and I hope you can keep it up with all the challenges involved in deanhood. Well, I hope so, too. I really, I really hope so. So thank you so much. Okay, great. Take care. You've been listening to Dr. Faye Mishnah discuss cyberbullying. Thanks for listening. And join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.